Lord, I thank you for this time that we have to study your word. I pray that it would be fruitful, that you would speak to each one of our hearts. And Lord, may your spirit fill us. And it is your spirit that gives us the understanding. And I, again, thank you for this time that we have to meet uh, and the freedom to do so. As it seems our freedoms uh, dwindle. Lord, when they dwindle even more, may we always be bold and stand firm in your word and in the faith that we have. And uh, Lord, speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like to open to the book of Micah, chapter 3. We went through chapters 1 and 2 last week. Just a brief overview of what we went through. Uh, Micah is one of the nine pre-exile prophets before Judah was carried away to Babylon uh, in 586 B.C. The other three minor prophets are post-exile or after that return. Micah prophesied during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. He's from a rural farming town about 20 miles away from Jerusalem, southwest, uh, near the land of the Philistines. He's quoted twice in other books, Jeremiah and in the book of Matthew. You can separate the book into three sections. You do this by looking at the Hebrew word Shema, or in English, here. So chapter 1 and 2 starts with here. Chapter 3 through 5 starts with here. And then 6 through 7 starts with here. Now, my original plan was to go through 3 through 5, but I'm only going to do 3 through 4 this morning. So with that, let me start with verse 1 of chapter 3. Now, chapter 3, well, I'm sorry, let me begin again. Well, chapter 1 and 2 is talking about the sins of Samaria or Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. Chapters 3 through 4 is more specific towards leaders and prophets and priests and their specific role and how... Uh, the nation sinned. So verse one says of chapter three, listen, or I'm sorry. Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice? Verse two, you who hate God and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones. Verse 3, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Now that is a very graphic description. And they're not literally doing it. They're not being cannibals physically. But its use is because they are using the people themselves. They are taking the people and abusing or taking the rights away from the people. They were symbolically feasting on the people of God, taking their money, taking their rights, taking their property, all these different things. Now, these were the leaders in Micah's day. But if you go back to Exodus 18, Moses himself was overloaded judging the people from morning to night. He would stand there at the door of his tent or the tent of God and the people would come to him one by one and he would judge their cases so his father-in-law Jethro saw this and he said you know what you're doing this is not a good idea you're exhausting yourself you're exhausting the people so Jethro's thought for him was why don't you get some men who are capable to help judge the minor cases for you and then you just do the really difficult ones but he had two criteria for Moses to follow they had to be capable I'm sorry, three criteria. Capable men, these capable men had to fear God, and they had to be trustworthy men who, were, who hated dishonest gain. That means they couldn't be bribed. It meant more to them to be truthful and honest, despite not being popular, than it did to, um, it meant more to them than money or popularity did. Now, these verses also remind us that the leaders never exist for the sake of being leaders. They're not there so they can have 
pomp and circumstance and yes, I'm in this position of power and you should respect me. The Bible always has a different view of that. And Jesus himself said, you know, the Gentiles, they exercise lordship over you in the way that's not my way. Jesus said the proper leadership is servant leadership. A leadership, a leader should never serve God's people dominated by the question, what's in it for me? When they do, they are like a cannibalistic leader who goes and feasts off the people. Now, this is relevant politically in our day because you can see that a lot of politicians, they take special interest money uh, for their own gain. And they're not doing it to serve the people. And that's really what the founding fathers set it up for. It was, there were no lifetime politicians. That's, that was never the intent. It was always, you serve your time, you serve the people, and then you get out and you go on with what you were doing. And uh, I watched, it was probably 20 years ago, I was watching Jay Leno and Jesse Ventura, who was a wrestler and a movie star. He was the governor of, of some, st what state was it? Minnesota. And that was the ideal he had in mind. And he went on there on that late night talk show and said, look, we're not even doing it right. He's all, and he's not a Christian. He's not someone who um, follows God in any way that I'm aware of right now. But he understood what the concept was. And he, from what I understand and what I've read, ran the state correctly. He ran it justly. But that was what the intent was. Now, at the same time, in the higher government that we have, there's politicians who give themselves raises, Congress. And at the same time, Social Security is being stolen and they predict that by the time I retire or people, other people, um, there will be no Social Security. And that's the kind of cannibalistic nature that's even going on in our society today. It is happening. It's still happening. That's why MICA, relevant then, is still relevant now. One of the reasons. Verse 4 says, Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time he will hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. I believe God is silent for three reasons. I believe God is silent. Maybe he's not silent, but maybe you're not hearing him because you're not listening. A lot of times we're so caught up in the clutter and the day-to-day -day things of life that we're not listening like we should. The number two reason is we're not repentant. A lot of times there will be a sin that gets into our life. And last week we talked about Satan trying to get a foothold in our life in some way. And sometimes that foothold that he grabs is a sin that distracts us and pulls us away from God. And it's the sin that we need to repent of because the only prayer that God is willing to listen to is one that is repentant in the first place. If we haven't repented of a sin, it essentially says in the Bible, God is deaf towards you. You have to repent. He's not going to answer any other prayers until you've repented. Now, I've had people on Facebook that will say, looking for good thoughts and prayers from all my friends. I can go along with the prayers part. Um, I was watching, a, it's probably five years ago now, Kirk Cameron and I think Ray Comfort were on some late night talk show talking about the Bible. And Kirk talked to his opponent and said, I'll pray for you. And his atheist opponent said, well, I'll think for you. And God's not listening to good thoughts. Not that he wants the worst for anybody. He wants the best for everybody. But to have the best, we have to be repentant in the first place. And so there's these sound out good thoughts. And I have a, a coworker who's a good friend, and I work with him. He's not a Christian. But I'm able to be very open with him about the gospel and talk to him about the Bible. And he has this little pendant he wears on his, um, his collar. It's an angel. And he said, this is my good luck charm. And so he thinks good thoughts, he, good karma, or whatever you would like to call it, towards people. And I told him, you know, that doesn't do anything. God's not looking at that. God actually just wants your heart. And... We had a good conversation back and forth, and he goes, I respect that. But and I told him, I said, respect doesn't get you to heaven. I said, repentance is what does that. And we got to make sure uh, when we're talking to people, you know, you can 
respect someone's belief and still disagree with them. You can be disagreeably tactful in the way you do it. And I was open with him, still have a good relationship with him, still praying for him, and I still talk to him about it. Now, the third reason that we may not hear God is maybe God's already told you something, and he's just waiting for you to do that. You need to do that before he gives you further direction. A lot of times, that's what happens. Um, I've read many missionary books with my children, and a lot of times, the missionary, they're like, well, what do you want me to do? I want you to go do this. Okay, well, I'll do that in a second. What else do you want me to do? Just do that. Okay, but after that, no, just do that first. So finally, after much prodding by God, they realized, okay, I'm just going to do this. So they do that, and all of a sudden, God opens door after door after door, and they have this ministry open to them because they were obedient to the first thing he said. And after that, he speaks. Now, these people, these leaders, God wasn't going to listen to them because they weren't repentant. They weren't sorry. They weren't crying out because they were sorry about what they had done. They were crying out because they got caught. And nobody, nobody likes to get caught. With my children, sometimes at home, they'll get caught and they'll start crying. And I'll be like, are you sorry about what you did? Or are you unhappy that you got caught? And they'll literally cry, it's because I got caught. And then we have to have a whole discussion on repentance. And we give a little Bible study and everything. But it's funny because, you know, a lot of times children, they're very honest up front. Um, especially when they know that there's not going to be repercussions for that honesty. And sometimes there is repercussions, but they're, they were very, uh, it was very amusing, their honesty. We have to turn our face away and hide a smile because of how they do it sometimes. But anyway, God will only answer a humble and contrite a repentant heart. Now, it also says in verse 4, he will hide his face from them. One of the blessings that's mentioned in Numbers chapter 6 uh, to God for his people is, may his face shine upon you. Well, they weren't going to get that blessing. Instead of a face that shined upon them, God was going to hide their, his face from them. And that was another one of their... Uh, disciplines, punishments. Verses 5 through 8. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. Therefore, night will come over you without visions and darkness, without divination. The sun will set on the prophets and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgressions, to Israel his sin. So Micah's contrasting two prophets here, false prophets and true prophets. And he's basically pronouncing judgment on the false prophets because we've already seen what they're guilty of. They're guilty of taking bribes from the people to prophesy good things. And last week we saw, I brought up uh, Ahab. He was upset about Micaiah because he always prophesied bad things. Whereas these false prophets, and I think one of them was named Chinanana or something to that effect. uh, He was always giving Ahab good prophecies because he'd get rewarded for it. So these false prophets were getting gain. And Micah says, well, there's a difference between you and there's a difference. That difference is, one, he was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to speak God's word. Now, as with anything we do, whether it's teaching God's word or whether it's sweeping up outside, whether you're a deacon or an usher or the cleaning ministry, whatever it is you're doing in the church, Everything is for the glory of God, and everything is by the Spirit of God and His power. It's nothing we do of ourselves. We can do it ourselves, but if we're doing it ourselves, it's like, you know those mills that would turn, and they put the grain in there, and they crush the grain so you'd get flour? It's like a mill turning, grinding no flour. There's nothing in it. It's empty. It's turning for no reason. It's pointless. So if I'm doing this, or we're doing some work for the Lord, and we're doing it without the power that He's providing... We're, it's empty. It's meaningless. It doesn't do anything for us. 
Now, in Acts chapter 6, the apostles themselves were doing everything. They were teaching, they were praying, they were serving tables, they were, they were ministering in every different way. And not that what they were, everything they were doing was wrong, but they were doing too much. They weren't focusing on the specific ministry God had given them. So what God said was, I want you to separate for yourselves people to serve and minister to the people. And this is part of where the deacons started getting set up. And so a requirement to just serve tables was you had to be someone who was full of the Holy Spirit. That was just to serve tables, to give food, to hand out food to the poor. That was the first requirement, full of the Holy Spirit. And when I say that, a lot of people unknowingly think, well, how does that feel? I can't tell you how that feels because I don't feel if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. Some people do. I can tell you, I must be full to some degree because I'm standing in front of you and I'm an introvert. I don't do this. Um, but you have to have the spirit behind it. Even if you don't feel the spirit, if you're praying for it, the Bible says simply to ask. If you want the spirit, it says in Luke, ask for it. You may not feel it. You may feel it. If you do, that's, that's good for you. Um, just know that you have to have his power to do any ministry that God gives to you. Now, the second thing that Micah had these false prophets didn't have was his words of justice or words of righteous judgment. They weren't his own. They came directly from God. He wasn't getting paid for this. He wasn't getting paid to say anything about the people. Now, he's going to say some good things later. He's not getting paid to say good things. He's not getting paid to say bad things. He's doing it because God has called him to do it. And in the Old Testament, most of what the prophet's jobs were was to expose the sin of the people. And that was more relevatory or an application. Hey, this is what you're doing. Let's not do that. Because if you do, let me tell you what God is going to do. It's a kind of a conditional, unconditional type of prophecy. In the New Testament, while... Prophecy may have still exposed sin. It actually tells us in 1 Corinthians 14.3 that he who prophesies will speak edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. Now that sounds a lot different than what we see in the Old Testament. But it's really not. What happens is you see all this judgment that God is inflicting. But he's not really doing it because he wants to. He does it because he has to, because he's the righteous judge. But after he pronounces the judgment, and we'll see this in the next chapter, he pronounces a future that is glorious beyond anything that we can comprehend of ourselves. And we have these words on a page that describe the future, and I'm sure they pale in comparison to what it's truly going to be like, because God is using human words to describe something that he has created. And we can already see what he's created on the earth in six days. Imagine what he's going to create for us in a perfect world in heaven, new heaven, new earth. Now the third thing, it says he was given might or he was given courage to stand fearlessly against men and to preach boldly against the sins of the nation. And it is a scary thing to preach against people when you're the only one who's doing it. If you remember Elijah, he thought he was the only prophet left in Israel preaching, and he's preaching against Ahab and Jezebel. And he goes into the palace or the temple of one of the gods. He pushes over one of the idols, and Jezebel says, may your life end, or she says some curse against him. I can't remember how it goes right now, but basically, you're going to die. So he takes that threat and he runs away even though he was bold one second he ran away the second god finds him on a mountain and says elijah what are you doing here i've been very zealous for the lord and i'm the only prophet left and everybody else is dead they've killed them all and god says no go back and so with the spirit of god power of the spirit of god he goes back and god he listens to god and goes to different places and eventually stands before ahab again and kills 400 prophets of Baal in a showdown. 
And it's difficult, like I said, to stand up. Um, Ephesians 6, 10 through 11. This is how we stand before, before people. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God that so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, Proverbs 28, 1 says, the wicked flee, though no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. When we take the spirit's power, it's his power. It's not my power. I don't have the power to do anything. It's always God's power that gives us the strength to stand up and be bold towards people. I've told this story in the past. When I was in high school and I had just become a Christian, there was a, I think I was a sophomore and this guy was a junior, but I'd walk home from school because I like to walk. And this guy was part of the junior JV football team or something like that. And he would walk by me at lunch all the time and kind of jeer at me. He'd say, you're just a Bible boy. Why are you reading that? Why are you reading that? And, you know, constantly. And then one time on the way home, he was riding by on his bike, and he spit on me. And I was like, oh, my goodness, that's gross. And I grabbed leaves from a tree and wiped it off and went home and wiped the rest of it off. But I didn't back down. I wasn't mean to him or anything. But I stood my ground in that. I said, yeah, I'm still going to read the Bible. I'm still going to do what I think God has called me to do. And at the time, I didn't know what that was other than be faithful to read and study his word and grow. And that's what I did. But that was a minor thing compared to what the early church went through. It's going to be a minor thing compared to where the, the direction this country is going. We need to be not worried about what people think and more worried about what God thinks. In Acts chapter 4, verses 29 to 31, it says, Now, Lord, consider their threats. And this is after the Sanhedrin has threatened the apostles to just basically shut up about Jesus. They didn't want to hear it anymore. Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. That's how you do it. Again, uh, repetitive. The Bible is very clear. You need the Spirit to really do anything of usefulness and to be bold as we need to be bold, as Micah was bold. We need to be filled with the Spirit. Now, verses 9 through 12 is a kind of a secondary summary of the sins that have happened. Now, verse 9 through 11 says, Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Now, they said, is not the Lord among us because the temple was still up in Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant may or may not have been there. Uh, historians are unsure at the time when it disappeared. But they believed the Shekinah glory of God was still there in the temple and that God was among them. And that as long as they performed their rituals, they were on safe ground. And they couldn't have been further from the truth. Verse 12 says, therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. So a description of Jerusalem is described in three events. Zion will be leveled. And we can see how leveled it was when you read Nehemiah. When he went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, he walked around the entire city. And it says he, has to, he had to get off his horse in some places and climb because that's how totaled everything was rubble wise he had to climb it over it and again the second is jerusalem will be a pile of rubble there'll be nothing there the temple mount will be overgrown with briars and thorns and when you look at verse 12 it's significant because it shows you that micah was actually one of the successful prophets now he wasn't listened to his entire ministry Hosea, one of his, Hosea was ignored. Amos was ignored. 
Now, when Jeremiah was thrown into jail for his prophetic judgment against Judah, some of the leaders, and I'm going to read Jeremiah in a second, they quoted Micah saying, hey, the people in Micah's day listened. We're not listening to Jeremiah. Maybe we should. And that was some of the people, not all the people. So here it is, Jeremiah 26. Then certain of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah ever put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and seek the Lord's favor? And the Lord relented concerning the doom which he had pronounced against them. But we are doing great evil against ourselves. So he was heard in the days of Hezekiah. And there was a small revival that did follow. And then 100 years later, his words were still remembered. And the memory of what happened uh, was actually used to spare Jeremiah's life. Now, another important thing to remember here is that you never know the full impact of your faithfulness here and the lives that God is going to allow you to minister to and encourage. Because you may be the only Bible that someone initially reads. Uh, I have three people listed here. Jim Elliott who was killed in Ecuador in the 50s by the Alka Indians, him and his four comrades, I believed, I believe. He is famous for saying, no man is a fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He also said, God always gives his best to those who leave the choice with him. Now, Jim Elliott uh, if you've never seen uh, or read Beyond the Gates of Splendor, I encourage you to read it because it, or watch the documentary. It is, uh, gives you a lot of knowledge and a lot of the background, shows you where these missionaries came from, and it's very encouraging. And one of the reasons I read and watch documentaries about missionaries with my kids is they go, oh, wow, I can't believe someone did that. And they look at that, and they're encouraged. Now, the second person is Hudson Taylor. He was the founder of China Inland Mission. He lost a wife and a daughter on the mission field. He spent 51 years in China. The society that he began was responsible for bringing over 800 missionaries to the country who began 125 schools and directly resulted in 18,000 Christian conversions as well as the establishment of more than 300 stations of work with more than 500 local helpers in all 18 of the provinces in China. That's what that one guy did who was obedient. He is credited with saying, Christ is either Lord of all, or he is not Lord at all. He also said, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supplies. The Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. These are two guys. And Hudson Taylor was in the 19th century. Again, his biography, and I've read a mini biography of his, not a full one, but just the mini one, everything he did, the way he was guided, those, th I, uh, it's very, tugs on your heart when you read how he lost his daughter and his wife, and you're like, oh my goodness. And yet he's like, you know what? Uh, God's still in control. God's still in charge. And he kept, pushing on. He kept moving on. Now, the third man is George Mueller. And we had to read this when I went to the Horizon School of Evangelism. And he was a man who lived by a very simple faith in God. He prayed for it without speaking to any of his human needs to anybody. He said, God, if you're going to be in this, I'm going to tell you what I need and you're going to provide it. And with that, God provided for orphanages covering 13 acres of ground on two different places in England, one called Ashley Downs, the other called Brist in Bristol. When God called him to start these orphanages, he had what amounted to 50 cents, two shillings. And again, without making what he needed known to any man, but only to God, 
he brought in over 1,400,000 pounds. For us today, that is $7 million. Because he asked in faith, because he was fulfilling the purpose God had for him. And he didn't live a wealthy, rich life. He wasn't like Robert Tilton or Joel Osteen buying jets for themselves. He did this, and he put it right back into the orphanages. He didn't keep anything. He was also credited with getting on his knees every morning and reading his Bible. And he read through the Bible more times than his age when he died. I don't remember what that was. It was over 90. But he would faithfully do that every morning. Near the time of his death, death, there were five large buildings of granite capable of accommodating 2,000 orphans. In all the years that he was there, not once did any of those orphans miss a meal. Even if they had empty cupboards, there was one time where they sat down at the table. They had no food to feed the kids. They prayed for God to bless the meal. And after the child said, amen, there was a knock at the door. There was a milkman, an eggman, and another cart, like one right after another saying, hey, you know what, my cart broke down and I don't want this to go to waste. Can you use it? And sure enough, the children were fed. And that was the faith with which he lived. The faith with which we should also live. And that's how he impacted other people. A hundred years later, he lived, um, I think he died in 1898. 1888. And he was born in 1805. He is credited with saying, Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. Now, none of these men were perfect, but they were faithful to God in what they had been called to do. Mike was faithful to God in what he'd been called to do. Seemingly, he was a failure as a prophet at first. And you know what? Most of the prophets were failures in man's eyes. But in God's eyes, they were faithful to do what they had been called to do. And again, read the, if you want to read the biographies, uh, I would strongly encourage you to. Uh, in John thirteen fifteen, because we use these men as an example. In John thirteen fifteen, Jesus said, I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. And he said this regarding serving each other. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. He also says in Philippians three seventeen, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have had us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So look for someone or read a biography or somebody who's stronger in the faith than you are and go, what are they doing? I want to find out how I can grow in my faith. And more than likely, they're going to say, this is what I do. And they're going to point to the word and they're going to point to prayer and they're going to point to fellowship and listening to the teaching of the word. But those people are also the ones who disciple others and say, hey, this is what I've gone through. I don't want you to go through it. Follow me. Here's, here's my advice from the Bible. Chapter 4. Verses 1 and 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, this is one of those things, the encouraging part of prophecy, where uh, edification and exhortation. This is, he just went from judgment pronounced for their sin. He says, but this is the future. This is what you have to look forward to. Now, if you remember last week, I was describing how the, the wicked men were excited to find something to do, to steal from the people. They'd wake up, they'd stay awake all night thinking of how they could scheme to steal people's stuff. And then they'd get up in the morning and do it. And I kind of, uh, related that to, you know, how children are super excited about going to Disneyland and they can't go to sleep the night before. Well, every time the prophets talked about the millennial kingdom, they didn't call it that, but the kingdom of the Messiah, they got excited. They looked forward to it. It's something they wanted to do. Now, my son, Merrick, 
I'll come home from work. And he doesn't, he's not good at telling what days are which yet. But I'll come home from work and he go, Papa, Papa, is it your day off tomorrow? And he gets this look on his face like he's constipated. And he's like this, he's all, because he wants to hear the right answer. The right answer for him is, yes, it's my day off tomorrow. But he goes like this. He literally does that. And I'm like, no, I have to work tomorrow. He goes, oh, and he gets all bummed out. But when I say, yesterday he asked me, he said, is it your day off tomorrow? It's my day off tomorrow. Yes. And he, he jumps around, he goes, we get to go to church. And he's excited about it. And he does the same thing because I have Tuesday, Sunday off. And Tuesday we go to something called Awana. So he's excited about that. Sorry. And then Sunday, obviously, we come to church. And he gets excited about that. And he looks forward to those as part of being my days off as well as usually a family time of hiking and, and other things like that. But he gets excited. And this is how the Jews, Jews reacted to hearing about the kingdom reign. They loved it. They were excited about it. They are like, when is that going to come? They were always looking forward to it. Verse 3, he will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. So again, we jump from upcoming judgment for sin to far future restoration, fulfilled during the millennium. Now, Messiah is going to reign from Jerusalem, and his people us are going to rule and reign with him. Now he's going to judge and we're going to judge with him, but all disputes will be settled. There will be no reason for war. It's almost like an enforced righteousness. That's going to be on earth at the time. So all weapons of war will be turned into tools for agriculture. And since the Bible says everything should be established by two or three witnesses, this verse is almost said verbatim in Isaiah chapter 2. They were contemporary prophets, so they're giving the same word of encouragement to the people. Verse 4 says, Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. Now, if you look at 1 Kings 4 and 1 Kings 18, this is actually a proverbial Hebrew expression That means prosperity and peace. That's what's going to happen. That's what they're looking forward to. Now, it's such prosperity and peace that they don't have to worry. They can live, they live in safety. They can sleep in the field without fear of burglary or robbery or getting killed or anything like that. Now, I remember growing up, we were allowed to stay out until the light came on in the street. I don't do that with my kids. I don't trust people today and my kids aren't allowed outside without direct supervision. Even if it's just us standing there watching them, they're not allowed outside. Um, and one of the reasons is, um, ever since, uh, Les, uh, made us aware of, uh, San Diego being the top place for, uh, sex trafficking and stuff like that. Jen and I keep a tight eye on the kids everywhere we go. Um, a very tight reign. And in the millennial kingdom, in the kingdom to come, that's not going to be an issue. No one's going to have to worry. Everybody's going to live in safety. We won't have to lock your doors or anything like that. Verse 5. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Now, there's two views to this verse. The first is that literally all the people's of that time do walk in the name of their God. And if you look at the archeological digs from that time of Micah, when they came upon the houses of these people, they would dig up hordes of these little idols that they had in their houses. And those were the the gods that they would walk in the name of. But then it seems like he's looking forward and saying, but in that day, in the day of, the reign of Christ, they will walk in his name and not the name of the gods. Now, the second is in the millennial reign, the inhabitants of earth will not be compelled to follow the Lord. Some people will walk in the name of whoever they want to serve. Other people 
namely the Jews and those of faith, will walk in the name of the Lord. I lean towards the second, primarily because we know at the end of the thousand-year reign, well, Satan is bound at the beginning of the thousand-year reign, so he has no influence on the earth. But we know at the end he's going to be released and he's going to influence people. Now, if someone's truly saved, they're not going to be influenced to attack uh, the city of Jerusalem or be condemned. So that's the way, that's where I lean. Verse 6 and 7. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame. I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. This is a picture of Israel's condition during the tribulation. This is future. When Jesus returns, this remnant, which is going to be one-third of the Jewish population, according to Zechariah, will come to salvation, also spoken of in Zechariah and Romans. Verse 8. As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. Now the phrase daughters, daughter Zion or daughter of Zion is mentioned several times in the Old Testament. Zion usually refers to Jerusalem and in some places it refers to the people of God of Israel in general. Daughter of Zion does not refer to a specific person. It is a phrase that represents the people of Israel as a whole. Uh, if Zion is Jerusalem, then the daughter of Zion is the people within her walls. And you can find this in Second Kings 19, Isaiah 1.8, Jeremiah 4, Zechariah 2. There's several places. There's even more than that. But this is what it's referring to is the people who live within the gates. Now, when he says daughter Zion or daughter of Zion, it implies, he is implying that God is the loving father. He cherishes his people. He loves his people, even when they're rejecting him. By using the metaphor daughter of Zion, God is showing them how he feels for them. Even though they've been rebellious, even though he has to judge them, even though he's frustrated and angry, he always has that eye to the future. And he's always showing the eye to the future. And every one of the the prophets, judgment, but look ahead. Verse 9. Why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your ruler perished that pain seizes you like a woman in labor? Micah asks three rhetorical questions. Why are you crying aloud? The answer they know is that they're going to be besieged and they're going to be forced to leave. Have you no king? They did have a king, but he was helpless to protect them. And when Babylon actually did finally destroy Jerusalem, the last two kings in Jerusalem were puppet kings. Zedekiah and Jehoiakim had no power outside of Babylon, outside of the king of Babylon giving them orders. And they will be left with no king after that, no true king, until Jesus comes and reigns in the millennial kingdom. Now, the third question, has your ruler perished or has your counselor perished? The king had no ability to rule the people. And as I said, the last two rulers were Jehoiakim and Jedekiah. So has he perished? No, but again, he's pretty much useless. He can't do anything. Verse 10, writhe in agony, daughter of Zion. Like a woman in labor, for now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. So the Babylonian captivity is presented as the pains of a woman in labor. A labor that would last for 70 years. Now, I saw all six of my children being born. And my wife's longest labor was 19 hours. And it looked painful, and I'm glad I don't have to endure that. <laughs> but this time that they're going to go through is going to be akin to that. And several times in Scripture, it describes their judgment uh, as going away to Babylon as labor pains. And this is also a foreshadowing of J Jacob's future trouble or Israel's future trouble in the tribulation called the time of Jacob's trouble, 
which in Jeremiah 30, verses 5 through 7, also describes as birth pangs. What's remarkable about this is that this is given 100 years before Babylon was truly a nation of power that could accomplish this goal. Verses 11 to 13. But how many nations are gathered against you, they say? Let her be defiled, let her eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will give you horns of iron. I will give you hooves of bronze, and you will break to pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. These verses seem to combine, as all of prophecy does, present and future circumstances. So what I'm going to do is read you the facts of the verses. Fact number one is many nations are going to gather against Israel. Number two, these nations don't understand that God has done this so he might destroy them in judgment. With these two right here, it seems very likely that it's future, what we would call the Battle of Armageddon. Third fact is Israel will help administer judgment. It says God will give her the horn of iron, which represents power and strength, and hooves of bronze. Bronze and brass usually represent judgment, and if someone is walking over you with hooves, you're being crushed in judgment which also seems reminiscent of Armageddon. Any spoils of war, fact number four, taken from Israel's enemies will be devoted to the Lord. <clears throat> it seems future, but there seem to also be several things in history that it could represent also. I don't know. Um, commentators go both ways on it, so I will let you study that and decide for yourself. Now, one reason people don't like to teach the Old Testament, prophets in general, is they say it's not applicable. They say, okay, well, how can there be a millennium? Because how is a millennium hope for the people of Israel? Because when you look at it, they're going away to judgment. They don't know when this reign of Christ is going to be, the reign of the Messiah. They have no idea. It could be hundreds of years off, and you'd ask yourself, well, how is that a comfort? That doesn't help me now at all. But when you look at the promises of God, a far promise of God is always bolstered by a near one. If you look at Abraham, he had a far promise that he was going to be the father of many nations, one that he would never see, but he had a near promise. And that near promise was that he would have a son in whose name the, I forget how to quote it now, but basically Isaac. He would have Isaac, and God fulfilled that near promise. So Abraham had faith that God was going to fulfill that promise, and the Bible says it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, in Isaiah 7, the house of Judah was given a far promise of the birth of the Messiah as their ultimate salvation. Yet this was given at a time when Jerusalem was surrounded. Pekah, the king of Israel, a king of Syria, Rezin, king of Syria, was surrounding Judah, Jerusalem. They had no hope. Everything else was done. <clears throat> so Isaiah gives him this prophecy, and Ahaz is probably thinking, well, that doesn't help me now, because even if the child is born, it takes nine months for gestation, and then it says the child's weaned, and how long is that going to take you? So you're saying, I'm going to be surrounded by these people for three years, maybe. And so it doesn't seem like a promise. But again, the far one is bolstered by a near one. Now, when Isaiah went to see Ahaz, king of Judah, he took his son with him. His son's name was Shir Yeshub. And basically, when Shir Yeshub reached a certain age, both Israel and Syria, who were surrounded surrounding Jerusalem would no longer be a threat. Now, within two years, maybe a year and a half, those two nations were non-existent. The threats that were there for Judah were non-existent. And God said, just trust in me. Don't worry about them. And in Isaiah, he calls them two smoking firebrands, which is like a smoldering end of a stick, which is really not a threat. He says, they're not a threat, so don't worry about them. 
Now, for us, we have the far promise of Christ's return. And it seems far still because, you know, 2,000 years have passed, but we still look for that hope. But we've been given a near promise, and it's already been fulfilled. One is, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you've been sealed with the Spirit. You're Christ's. He's not going to lose you. You're not going to get left out, or you're not going to get dropped out of his hand. You're Christ's. When he comes again, because our spirit has been made alive and we've been sealed with the spirit, we know his promise of us getting a new body and spending with him in eternity is relevant. For Micah, the far promise was this messianic kingdom, a kingdom reminiscent of David's kingdom. David's kingdom was successful. People in history have said David couldn't have existed. There's no record of him. In fact, the only tablet they managed to find recently said Solomon, son of David. And some people discount that. But when you study history, people don't mention when they were defeated in battle. David was never defeated in battle, so why would he be mentioned by anybody? They don't want to admit that they were defeated by a small, measly Jewish former shepherd. So he's not mentioned. But his kingdom was prosperous, and it was successful, and he subdued all his enemies. In this kingdom to come, all the enemies are going to be subdued. Christ is going to reign. There's going to be no threats. So that's the far promise. But what's the near promise? The near promise is that even though God promised them captivity, when you read Jeremiah, that captivity is only going to last 70 years. Now, that may still seem far away since our average age is 80 or 90 or whatever it is right now. But if you read Haggai chapter 2 and Ezra chapter 3, you find out that there were some people who were taken away captive. And when they returned and they laid the foundation for the temple, they remembered what it looked like. That promise was kept for them. God always keeps his promises. So if he keeps the near ones, we have complete confidence that he's going to keep those far ones. And for us, we need to make sure we keep looking for that promise and don't become complacent as we wait for his return. So with that, I'll call the worship team up, and I will close in prayer. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And it is always encouraging to know that even when life seems at its bleakest, even when things do not go our way, your promises are always kept. You always do what you say. You are faithful, even when we are not. And Lord, help us as we wait for your return to be the examples that we need to be, to be an example of someone who is loving, of someone who is just, of people who are fair, of people who care for the lost. And Lord, as we go out this week, help us to remember those things and to be your witnesses. In Jesus' name, amen.